The following podcast is a member of the Pokecasters Network. Pokecasters Network, supporting Pokemon content creators, their shows, and the community of Pokemon fans. To find out more, check out pokecastersnetwork.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Hello, and welcome to Lucas Lectures, hosted by the big fish himself, veteran Lucas. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's topic. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Lucas Lecture. It's me, Veteran Lucas. Hope you guys are having a fantastic day or night, wherever you are. Now, on today's episode of Lucas Lecture, we are going to be talking about a specific trainer class, the Pokemon Breeder. I hope that was obvious from the title. Don't know how more obvious I could have made it. Now, before I really get started into this, I do want to take this time to mention that because we are talking about animal breeding, we are going to be talking about reproduction. If you think your little one is too young to hear scientific terms without any jokes surrounding reproduction, that's on you as a parent. You are the one raising your kid. I'm not judging anybody. You can raise your little Pokemon trainer as you like. But as of this point forward, three, two, one, I will be using the words like penis, vagina, sperm. Reproduction is just a natural part of life. There's nothing inherently dirty about it. Anywho, let's talk a little bit about the Pokemon Trainer class itself, the Pokemon Breeders. So they've been around since Gen 3, even though we've had the daycare breeding cycle since Gen 2. Each generation since then has given them a bit of a different look, but most of them have kind of kept to the hardworking bandana hat farmer, which is actually pretty common in manual labor here in Japan. A lot of the people who will do any sort of outdoor work, any cooking work, will wear a bandana on their head to keep their hair out of whatever they're doing. Uh, it wasn't until Generation 7 or 8 where they got that look at the typical Western farmer. You know, the plaid shirts and the hats and the overalls were really more added as the generations went by. Now, when you fight them, what always made me happy to fight them was that they usually had a really large number of Pokemon, which made them great for getting XP when you're moving through the game. And they always had a really wide variety of mons to work with. In the game's lore, though, they tend to focus less on hatching and mating since, you know, that's all a big secret. Nobody knows how it happens. We, we know how it happens. Listeners, we all know. We all know that they have sex. Everybody knows it. Pokemon just can't say it, but we all know it. Uh, they really more focus on grooming, though, on the health and the friendship of the Pokemon. Now, what does that have to do with today's episode? Today, I want you guys to think a little bit about real-world breeders, what people who are actually in animal husbandry do to get the animals they need, why they do what they do, the pros and cons to animal breeding, and at the end, let's discuss a little bit about how the Pokemon breeder could be possibly the richest, most powerful group of trainers on the planet. So let's go ahead and start off with the history of animal husbandry, of animal breeding. For the mass majority of human history, animal breeding wasn't all that complicated. Put a male and a female of any animal together and let nature sort itself out. You will get an offspring one way or the other. Uh, the work of actively selecting breeds didn't really start until around the 1700s when people started to keep records on which animals they were breeding so they could keep track of which favorable traits each animal had. Credit for that goes to a man by the name of Sir Robert Bakewell, even though uh, he did use inbreeding at the time, which, again, they didn't know how bad inbreeding was. You can see that in their monarchs. <clears throat> but it is important to understand that at that time, the idea of keeping records on the different looks of animals as they were mating and giving them almost a history of what they were 
bringing to the table when they made it was completely revolutionary at the time. When the 1800s rolled around, there really wasn't much of a difference. Uh, even with the discovery of natural selection and genetic inheritance both being discovered in that time period, most people didn't really see those techniques. There was this newfangled wild scientific theory that spat in the face of God and true modern science of the 1800s. But it is important to know that at the time breeding and selectively breeding specifically was still very much in fashion, especially with things like dogs. Uh, they didn't really start using these techniques of natural selection and genetic inheritance until the 1900s. That one was when we saw some real big changes. Instead of just focusing on exterior traits, they started using calculations and statistics to better determine which traits to look for and the best way to obtain them in the offspring. Again, the idea of genetic inheritance allows you to better understand the best odds of getting certain traits. If you wanted your horse to run a little bit faster or if you wanted your dog to have a specific kind of coat, you could use the calculations and statistics that are, I'll be honest, way over my head to go ahead and calculate the best odds of getting them. Animal breeding has affected all of our lives since almost every domesticated animal you've ever come in contact with, in fact, all domesticated animals you ever come in contact with have been bred with a specific purpose in mind and with specific genetics you're looking for. For cows, it's either going to be meat or milk production. For dogs, it's going to be strength, speed, agility, coat, uh, herding ability for working dogs. Uh, for chickens, cows, pork, it's going to be meat content versus fat content. It's going to be a lot of work getting all of these breeds to function the way you need them to. And to do that, we have to talk a little bit about what it's like to be an animal breeder in a day-to-day -day life. So uh, animal breeders don't make too much usually, usually less than $50,000 a year in the United States. But a good chunk of a breeder's day-to-day -day life is very similar to most any other animal care professional, cleaning, feeding, and exercise. Uh, the big difference is that now, you have to track when these animals are in heat and approaching estrus. For those who don't know what estrus is, it's when you are most likely to produce an offspring during sex. You will also have to monitor their weight and growth pattern and have it all cataloged and calculated. Uh, one of the big things about being an animal breeder is you want to be able to show that you have a dog that comes from a good stock, so to say. You want to make sure like, oh yeah, they grow really well. Here's all their weight issues. Here's all their health issues to make sure there aren't as many. Uh, the other less pleasurable part of the job, you are going to have to collect sperm from the males, label it and store it so that it can be used on females or be sold off to someone who really wants that sperm. To collect it, a lot of people have invented a lot of really weird and cool stuff to get it. Uh, there are specific mounts for horses that they collect sperm. Uh, there are even special hats that falcons will land on, have sex with, and then that will produce sperm too. I highly recommend you Google the Falcon sex hat. I, uh, it's not just a joke. It's just a really weird thing that exists and you deserve to know what it looks like. In our world, it's not really going to be the most highest paying though. Like I said, $50,000 ain't a whole lot. But think about it for a prize winning dog or a prize winning horse. By collecting their sperm and selling it out, you can make a lot. And I mean a lot of money. There are some horses' sperms that will sell for $100,000 for just a small amount of sperm. That white liquid is filled with millions, if not billions, of cells that are ready to fertilize with any egg they come in contact with. So even a small amount of sperm can go a long way if it's administered to an animal at the right time.
So obviously we need to talk about the ethics of animal breeding, and let's be honest here, without animal breeding, for those of us who consume meat or dairy or eggs, basically anyone who isn't vegan and was born and raised vegan, we probably wouldn't be here today. By breeding animals, we were able to make animals that could produce more meat and more food and more products for us to survive. Whether you are vegan or not, whether you agree or disagree, the truth is, without animal breeding, human society would have never been able to feed itself on the level it is today. Whether that's right or wrong, that's something that's definitely worth debating. In terms of endangered species, it cannot be denied that what we've learned from breeding has saved a lot of animals. There are breeding programs, specifically one called the Species Survival Plan, where AZA Association of Zoos and Aquariums, uh, AZA accredited zoos, can actually match almost like an online dating site with different endangered animals, everything from penguins, roseate spoonbills, rhinoceros, giraffe. If you have an animal that is an endangered species in the wild, you can breed it in human care in hopes of returning them out into the wild. Uh, this has been done pretty successfully. This is a really cool thing that we can do using the same science that is used to make pugs. We can go ahead and use that to save an animal from extinction. On the note of pugs, uh, the downside of animal breeding obviously is the damage that it can do to the animal itself when we look for specific traits. Uh, overbreeding an animal can lead to a lot of long-term physical damage since childbirth is hard on the body of any organism, no matter what species it is. And this is why a lot of states in the United States have started banning puppy farms because the puppy farms are just causing so much pain to these mother dogs who are just constantly in labor and constantly having birth and constantly being impregnated, it can be a really stressful thing for these animals just to get a really weird-looking dog. Uh, in the past, there was reckless disregard for inbreeding of animals, which led to a bunch of different uh, mutations in these animals that you would never see pop up. Uh, this has definitely changed a lot in modern times, although we can still find some of the after-effects of that on occasion with things like bulldogs and pugs. Bulldogs and pugs... I think bulldogs are cute, don't really care for pugs, but both of these animals are plagued with health issues because we bred for a specific trait, and that specific trait causes them issues to the point where bulldogs have to undergo C-section in order to give birth. They cannot give birth naturally. So it's always important to understand that while we have the ability to breed these animals, we have the ability to make them have different features, be bigger or be a little bit more different, it is important to understand that it can be damaging. Uh, the last con, and it's not really animal breeding's fault, it's more so humanity's fault, is that people assumed that humans were the same when it came to animal breeding, and this led to the science of eugenics, where it's the idea that you can breed the better stock of people, or that there's a better stock of genetics, or the racehorse theory, as some people have brought it up. Believe me, that is some dark stuff. You do not want to go down that road of assuming you can just breed the perfect human, because spoiler alert, you can't. There's far more to a human being than our genetic makeup. On a lighter note, let's talk about why the Pokemon breeders should be disgustingly rich, powerful, and dangerous beyond all reason. So, in the Pokemon games, we keep saying that the Pokemon trainer's life is an expensive one, made for the rich. If you've been to our panels, and I know you Colossal Con people have, paying to be a Pokemon trainer is a lot. But... There's one group of trainers, the breeders, that really wouldn't ever have to worry about that. Pokemon daycares get access to all kinds of Pokemon, which means they get access to all kinds of eggs that are left behind. Think of 
all of the potential stallions and studs that you have access to if you have a daycare. Now imagine if you're the champion. If you're the champion, you could literally sell off your starter sperm or eggs and make a fortune. Some racehorses, again, you could sell their small amount of sperm for $100,000. How much money do you think you could sell an egg that you were just going to give away anyway? Think about all of these Pokemon that you've had that just don't have the right stats. People don't care. If that is the Pokemon that won the championship, in reality, no one's going to check to see if it has the highest stats or not. Nobody cares. It's like, I have the Charmander that was born of the Charizard that beat Gary Oak. Come on, I'm going to get that one. Now, if you run the daycare, you could make money off the daycare fees. Or what I would do, I would say that it's totally free, that your Pokemon can level up here. But if we find any eggs, we have the right to keep at least one. Remember, the daycare's job in the Pokemon games is only to level up your Pokemon. That's the whole in-game reason. The fact that you produce eggs is a quote-unquote happy surprise. We all know it's not a surprise because nature, but you could still make a lot of money by just having that. If Pokemon breeders were smart enough, they could cash in on some of the Pokemon's unique abilities or rare moves. They could be the richest people in the region. Everything in the Pokemon world runs on Pokemon. Everything from the power to the food stuff to entertainment to the police work all run on Pokemon, and every single one of them is going to want the best of the best of the best. In our world, I don't really need a perfect horse. I have a Metro Pass, but in the Pokemon world, everyone's going to want to get their hands on it, especially the excessively wealthy. You could become excessively wealthy yourselves. Pokemon breeders work hard for their money, though. That would be the downside. You have to work disgustingly hard to be a Pokemon breeder. It is not an easy life to convince a horse to mate with a random bag that you have just sitting there. It's more than a bag, obviously. I'm just making a quick joke here. But think about it from a Pokemon standpoint. How exactly are you going to coax this Dragonite when it's in Estrus to go near a bunch of other Pokemon? How many Dittos are you going to have to procure and how are you going to be able to tell them apart? Uh, can you imagine going up to a Tyranitar in heat? Can you imagine all the male Tyranitars that would be drawn in to that female Tyranitar in heat? You are going to have to deal with the strongest beings on the planet when they are in the mood to make babies. Take it from someone who knows. There are certain animals you really do not want to be near when they want to have babies. And guess what? Every single Pokemon kind of falls into that category. So, of all the trainer classes of the rich boys, the veterans, the aces, the fishermen, the Giovannis of the world, the rocket grunts, whoever you're thinking of, there is not a single one of them that comes even close to the sheer political, economic, and social power that is the Pokemon breeder. They literally have access to nukes if the nukes could have sex and make more nukes. So before we wrap up this episode about sex, breeding, and life itself, I do want to give a special shout out to our newest patron, Charles. I got to tell you, Charles, I was literally on the bus about to record this episode, and I saw that you became a patron. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate it. And you paid in pounds, which makes it exotic for us, really. We don't get a lot of people from the UK paying it off. We really do appreciate it. So thank you guys so much for listening. Everyone, you all make this show 
so possible for me to do this all the way from Japan and keep the rest of this going. We have a lot of really cool stuff coming in July. We have an episode about the USA coming back. We have an episode about our showdowns. We even have a really cool weather interview that will be coming up. We have a lot of really good stuff for you this next month. So please share it with your friends. Leave a review. We've already got some really, really good suggestions. I saw one for a Fox episode. I'm like, oh. Oh, right. We haven't done a Fox episode. Well, would you look at that? And hopefully we'll be able to get that down the pipe. So thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your day or night. We'll see you guys on the next episode. Peace. Peace.